The Achaemenid Empire lasted 208 years. The Macedonian Empire of Alexander the Great lasted 231. The Roman Republic lasted 233. Romanov Russia lasted 234. Today, the United States of America is 244 years old. What happens next? Where do we go from here? What do we build out of the ashes? Hello, I'm Kanaz Filan, and these are notes from the end of time. Hello, everybody. I'm Kanaz Filan. Thank you for joining Notes from the End of Time. I'm part of Tom Kaczynski's Free Atlantic Radio Project. For those of you who don't know us, Tom Kaczynski's the notorious Maine white supremacist, and I'm the sinister New Jersey white supremacist a few hours south of him. So you people are white supremacists, I hear you asking? Well, the media says so, so I guess it must be true. I mean, if you can't trust the Daily Beast and the main beacon, who can you trust? Neither Tom nor I ever declared ourselves white supremacists. In fact, several years of hanging around some of the Internet's darkest and dingiest corners, I have yet to meet anybody who ever declared themselves a white supremacist. White supremacist, you see, isn't an identity, it's a label. It's something people put on you. The Anti-Defamation League declares you a white supremacist. The Southern Poverty Law Center declares you a white supremacist. Random non-binary people with pink hair who groom children in Maine call you a white supremacist. And, of course, these are all reliable, trustworthy sources, so if they say I'm a white supremacist, well... Who am I to argue? But what about your reputation, you may ask? Don't, aren't you afraid that people will think less of you if they call you a white supremacist? Well, of course I am, but you see, there is no arguing with this label. If I argue with it, I'm a white supremacist in denial. I haven't owned my racism. I haven't checked my privilege. I haven't groveled tearfully and begged forgiveness for sins I don't acknowledge. And neither do I intend to. So I figured rather than fight the label, I'd wear it with pride. If I'm what you believe to be a white supremacist, then all I can really do is be the best possible white supremacist I can be. Because you see, I believe that white people exist and that their existence is something other than a problem to be solved. We've used the word white to describe people of European descent in the New World for centuries. I'm aware that there's baggage connected with it. I'm aware that the term has been used to shut people out, and I'm very sorry about that, but you play the hand you're dealt. There are 200 million people in America right now who identify as and are identified as white. We are the descendants of people who have a 40,000-year-plus history in the European mainland. We exist, and we're not going anywhere, and we're not going to die off, and we're not going to be shamed out of our history and our heritage. And if that makes me a white supremacist, then I am a white supremacist. I believe that my culture is worth preserving. In fact, I will go so far as to say we must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. 
And right now, somebody at the ADL is positively plotting because I just said the 14 words. Oi, we must secure the existence of our people in a future for white children, you Nazi! Okay, let's take a look at those 14 words. Word 1, we. That really bothers them because they are really frightened of white people seeing themselves as a we instead of a bunch of atomized individuals. That is the heart of the globalist philosophy. It's the heart of the Frankfurt School. It's the heart of philosophy written by people like Herbert Marcuse, who wrote Eros and Civilization, A One-Dimensional Man. It's filled out by Karl Popper, who wrote The Open Society and Its Enemies. And yes, that is the book that inspired George Soros to create the Open Society Foundation. The basic idea is that ethnic identities of all sorts, racial identities, are a bad thing and we need to get rid of them so we can have a free, open society of freedom, tolerance, open borders, open trade. And that open trade is especially important to them. You'll note because open trade and open borders means wealthy people get wealthier. It means that they don't have to pay high salaries to native workers and instead they can farm the work out to where they can get it done for pennies or get it done by slave labor, as happens in China. When people get together and start thinking of themselves as we instead of a whole bunch of autonomous individuals, they organize to protect their mutual interests. And that seems to really scare a whole lot of very wealthy people. In fact, a recent leaked Amazon memo listed workplace diversity as one of the best ways to prevent labor unionization. We're allowed to identify ourselves by the clothes we buy. We're allowed to buy, uh, identify ourselves by the food we eat. We're allowed to identify ourselves by what gets us sexually aroused. But we're not allowed to identify ourselves based on our heritage and our ancestors. We're allowed to say, we must fight for vegan rights. You know, we're allowed to say, we must stop persecution of furries, of leather people. We must not kink shame or fat shame or poor shame. But we're not allowed to say, we must secure the existence of our group. We're allowed to engage in any sort of diversion we want, so long as we don't organize as a group. We can be a whole bunch of kink communities and vegan communities and CrossFit communities. We can identify ourselves by our shoes. But when we start talking about our common interests and we start making demands, suddenly we become dangerous. Why? Who do we frighten? What do you think white people were going to do when we work to secure the existence of our people and a future for our children. When a desperate Guatemalan mother sneaks across the U.S. border with a child on her back, we're supposed to see her as a hero who's fighting desperately for something better for her next generation, and she is. Why would you think that it was bad for anybody to secure a better future for their child? I know a lot of you are thinking that our version of securing a better future for our children is going to involve gas chambers and Nazi death camps and we're going to kill everybody in our path. 
To be perfectly honest, the best way I can ensure a better future for my daughter is to avoid a war. I know some of you who are listening are parents. Do you want your children growing up in a war-torn country? Do you want them growing up in an American Sarajevo? I don't think you do. I don't want that for my daughter. I want peaceful solutions to this problem if there are peaceful solutions to be found. Yes, I will die for my daughter, and yes, I will kill for my daughter if it comes to it. I'll be haunted for the rest of my life if it comes to that, but I'll never regret it. As a Roman Catholic, and hell, as a human being, I am obligated to seek out peaceful means, if at all possible, to consider war an awful last resort and to pray that we avoid war. I do not want a war. Tom doesn't want a war. None of us want a war. We may be ready to fight a war. We are ready to fight a war. We don't want a war. I am ready to sit down and work fairly and honestly as an equal with anybody. I do not care about your race, your religion. I will work with you toward peaceful and mutually beneficial ends. We don't have to love each other. We don't even have to like each other. The only way you settle wars is by people working together through mutual enlightened self-interest to achieve the best and most lasting possible peace. I understand that there can be no peace without justice. Right now, we live in an unjust society. We're seeing the fruits of that in the protests. We're seeing the fruits of that in this rage. We're all very angry. We all know we've been cheated. We can waste that time squabbling amongst ourselves, or we can work together to overthrow the real enemy, which is the filthy, rotten, corrupt, unjust system which rules over us. Every day that filthy system grows richer on our blood and our sweat. Our enemy hates Western civilization. It hates America. It hates our history. It wants to replace it with a corporate world monoculture. Our enemy hates piety, it hates devotion, it hates religion, and it would see it replaced by hedonism and nihilism. Our enemy sold our black brothers and sisters as property. They would see us all locked together in chains of debt. In their world, we will all be equally poor, equally uneducated, and equally entertained by digital bread and political circuses. And while Black Lives Matter is a very popular slogan today and you see corporations throwing all sorts of money and hashtags in your direction, at the end of the day, your blackness is every bit as threatening to the globalists as our whiteness. They're using it right now as a tool against the majority. Once they achieve their goals, they're going to have no more tolerance for black nationalism than they do for anything that even remotely approaches white nationalism. If you want to see how, far, how black you can be and still get support from the liberal left, just ask Reverend Louis Farrakhan about that. You can ask Ice Cube, Tariq Nasheed, 
quite a few black men have found themselves running afoul of the limits of the plantation. You know, we support you. We are your allies. But you have to buy into our agenda. And if you don't, you'll be replaced by somebody else who does. Communists have always seen every form of nationalism as inherently dangerous. They're only using yours to break down the major society to create their utopia. There's no place for a black man in that utopia. There's no place for a white man. There's only room for comrades. And if you're not a comrade, and if you don't get to the program, well, they've got gulags for you. Just ask the Circassians, just ask any of the Caucasian minorities that got moved out by Stalin. Just ask the Jews of the Soviet Union what happened when they wanted to be Hebrew, to study Hebrew instead of being good communists. Right now, your ethnicity is important because they can use it as a tool toward regime change. They're trying to overthrow the currently elected President of the United States, and while I must admit I'm not a great Donald Trump fan, I've never been a great Donald Trump fan, spent over a decade in New York, we were hating Donald Trump before The Apprentice. But I do think that the best way to get out a bad president is at the voting booth rather than by a coup. And I sure as hell don't believe that the people using your anger to throw a coup are doing it because they think black lives matter. And now, let's talk a little bit about that. Black lives matter. I mean, you've been hearing it a lot. Corporations around the world are saying black lives matter. It's a popular hashtag. Everybody's wearing it on their shirts. Everybody's waving signs saying black lives matter. But... That's a hell of a low bar to shoot for. I mean, my credit card bill matters. When my tooth hurts, my toothache matters. I mean, that's a real low bar. I'll go one better for you. <clears throat> I was raised a Roman Catholic. That's my ancestral faith. I'm not the best Catholic in the world, I'll tell you that. I struggle greatly at times with the idea that a man could be born of a virgin and die on a cross and then rise again. That's a crazy story. But my ancestors who believed that crazy story helped to create Western European civilization, one of the great civilizations of world history. And I'm very proud of that. And I think there's a lot of wisdom and insight to be gained within the Roman Catholic tradition. And Within the Roman Catholic tradition, not only do black lives matter, black lives are sacred. Every human being, without exception, is possessed of an immortal soul made in the image of God. Every human life, without exception, from conception to death, is sacred. Yeah. Your allies can tell you black lives matter. You know, can they tell you black lives are sacred? They can't because they don't believe in the sacred. You know, they can't tell you black lives are holy because they mock the very idea of holiness. They think it's just a primitive religious superstition. You know, all they can tell you is that your life matters. And it does for so long as it matters to them. One of the ideals that fueled this protest, that fueled the civil rights movement, 
the fueled abolitionism, is the idea that all men are created equal. Now that comes from our Declaration of Independence, and it was written by a slaveholder named Thomas Jefferson. You may have heard of him. Some of his monuments have been defaced in the recent Black Lives Matter protests, and it is true, Thomas Jefferson was a slaveholder. Thomas Jefferson owned over 600 slaves. And for a lot of people, that's more important than the writings where he described slavery as a hideous blah and a moral atrocity. And it's true, I, can, I understand your discomfort, but the thing about ideals is if you always live up to your ideals, you don't have ideals, you have affirmations. The fact that Thomas Jefferson was able to write that language, the fact that Thomas Jefferson was able to see that moral depravity, even as he was unable, you know, even as he fell into temptation, as fallen man is wont to do, even as he took the convenient path, rather than you know taking the hard ro road of freeing 600 slaves, which was a considerable investment at that time, he opened the clearing where we could interrogate slavery, where we could question it, where we, where we could overthrow it. He opened up the space where we, could say, where we could ask, what did it mean to be created equal? Our founding fathers gave us the compass which we use today to judge how far they strayed. They taught us that all men have certain unalienable rights, that among those are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now let's stop for a second there. Unalienable. What does that mean? Well, according to the dictionary, it means cannot be taken away. These are rights that are cannot be taken away. And now, what do you mean a right that cannot be taken away? And how did the Founding Fathers justify that these rights were so, such an integral part of the human experience that they could neither be voluntarily taken away nor taken away by force? What they said is that all men are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. These rights were grounded in an eternal God. And this has been a, it's a great controversy. You know, were the founding fathers deists? You know, the founding fathers certainly were not Catholic. There was only one Catholic signer of the Declaration of Independence, but Half of them were graduates, were trained in divinity school. I mean, Thomas Jefferson, who's usually quoted as, the day, as one of the deists who signed the, signed the Declaration, said, you know, to the corruptions of Christianity, I am indeed opposed, but not to the genuine precepts of Jesus himself. I am a Christian in the only sense in which he wished anyone to be, sincerely attached to his doctrines, in preference to all others, ascribing to himself every human excellence, and believing he never claimed any other. 
and Ben Franklin, who was known for many things, but not particularly as piety, wrote a statement of his religious beliefs six weeks before his death in 1790, wherein Ben says, I believe in one God, creator of the universe, that he governs it by his providence, that he ought to be worshipped, that the most acceptable service we render to him is doing good to his other children, that the soul of man is immortal and will be treated with justice in another life, respecting its conduct in this. As for Jesus of Nazareth, I think the system of morals and religion as he left them to us the best the world ever saw. But I have some doubts to his divinity, though it is a question I do not dogmatism upon, having never studied it, and I think it needless to busy myself with it now, where I expect soon an opportunity of knowing the truth with less trouble. And is America a Christian nation? Well, I would ask this. Is Israel a Jewish state? The people who founded the state of Israel were not particularly devout Jews. They were not de devout practitioners. But they certainly were greatly influenced by the Talmud, by the Torah, by the Jewish religious practices. Certainly the United States was at least that influenced in its own creation. And so, yes, I would say the West, um, the United States, like much of Europe, is fundamentally Christian. We're not particularly observant. We've become less observant in recent years, but I'm not sure we're the better for that. For the Founding Fathers, these ideas were grounded in the idea of an immortal human soul and a creator who endowed us with those rights. Now, the ideology of modern liberalism is based on the is centered not in a creator, not in a community, but it's centered in the individual. The fundamental autonomy of the individual is right. But an individual without a soul is a very clever animal. A clump of cells outside the womb really differs from a clump of cells inside the womb only insofar as it made its way out. Animals do not have fundamental rights, they have pecking orders. And I'll admit some of this may seem a little bit abstruse, so let me give you a historical example. We're going to take a trip here to 1511 in Hispaniola, it's the Sunday before Christmas, and Father Antonio de Montesinos is delivering a sermon. And all the colonists, this is, you know, the Sunday before Christmas. Everybody's probably expecting the usual, you know, sort of Christmassy sermon. But today, Father Antonio informs his congregation, You are in mortal sin, that you live and die in it for the cruelty and tyranny you use in dealing with these innocent people. Tell me, by what right or justice do you keep these Indians in such a cruel and horrible servitude? 
On what authority have you waged a detestable war against these people who dealt quietly and peacefully on their own land? Why do you keep them so oppressed and weary, not giving them enough to eat, not taking care of them in their illness? For with the excessive work you demand of them, they fall ill and die. Or rather, you kill them with your desire to extract and acquire gold every day. And what care do you take that they should be instructed in religion? Are these not men? Have they not rational souls? Are you not bound to love them as you love yourself? Now, let me just explain one thing here for those of you who aren't Catholic. Mortal sin means your soul is damned until such time as you confess your sins, do penance, and amend your life. That priest told a congregation full of people who firmly believed in hell that their souls were headed that way. Now, I know hell's a primitive superstition. It's scary. It's ugly. We don't like to talk about hell. But for Christians living in the early 16th century, hell was a very real thing. And he put the fear of hell in them. So, of course, the governor of Hispaniola, Diego Columbus, who's son of another guy you might have heard of named Christopher, made a complaint to the Spanish government, and they had Father Montesinos sent back before he could upset the colonists any further. Now, the, colon the friars are back in Spain, and they managed to get an audience with some of King Ferdinand's courtiers. And those courtiers start thinking, well, if they're damned to hell, and they've told me about this, and I do nothing about that, Yes, you too are in mortal sin. And so they worked to do the best they could, which is to get them an appointment with King Ferdinand, whom they talked to, and Ferdinand started worrying about his immortal soul. Now, you have to understand, these humble little friars working in a colony had the king's royal jewels in a vice. There are plenty of stories of evil kings going to hell. You know, if these poor people who are possessed of immortal souls are being oppressed so cruelly in the name of King Ferdinand, then their suffering was on him and his soul was in danger. Right? This, like, I don't know if you can understand exactly what a great concern that would be to a 16th century king, especially one who's gone down in history as Ferdinand the Catholic. And so Ferdinand enacted the next year the laws of Burgos. And these obligated colonists to feed, house, and educate the natives in literacy and in the tenets of the faith it forbade the use of children and visibly pregnant women in the gold mines. Ordered, you know, no person or person shall dare to beat any Indians with sticks or whip him or call him dog or address him by any name other than his proper name alone. Now, 
didn't have a lot of chance to improve the lives of Hispaniola's Taino population. There was an up 15, 18, 19 smallpox epidemic that killed 90% of the Taino there. But the Burgos laws helped to serve as a model for relations between native populations and Spanish colonists throughout the Age of Discovery. They're among the first legal documents actually dealing with human rights. And, you know, Father Junipo Serra has been getting a lot of abuse lately. He's had two monuments torn down. Somebody wanted to burn down his church because he's a, you know, and vanguard of European imperialism. Junipo Serra worked very hard to make things better for the Indian people. Did he do enough? Maybe he didn't. I yeah, it's really diff- it's really not easy to be an armchair quarterback and look from the vantage point of the 21st century at what they should have done in the 16th. But they did the best they could out of a sincere concern for the souls and the well-being of the native Indians. Maybe those, uh, those ideals were honored more in the breach than in the observance. That's true. You know, we're, the church is a flawed human institution. It's run by flawed human men. I mean, our first pope denied Christ three times. You know, we've justified evil. We've tolerated evil. We've actively promoted evil. You know, I can't say anything in defense of that. But what I can do is ask you this. What do you suppose would have happened if the colonial era had been led by people who only cared for profits? You know, they thought souls were childish fantasies. They thought faith, you know, that's a childish fantasy, you know. Oh, I'm going to burn in hell if I hurt these poor Indians. Oh, God, oh, no, no more. You know, I guess I'll have to sacrifice all this gold. You know, do you suppose that would have been, godless conquistadors would have been any less rapacious? Do you think that they would have been any more careful to preserve native cultures? They would have shown any more respect for those traditions if they weren't, if they were only guided by gold and they weren't guided by that faith that also created the missionary era? Do you think things would have been better? I mean, those resources were there. That technology was there. Somebody was going to land there sooner or later and exploit it. Do you think it would have been any better if those, if the missionaries had not been there? If the Catholic Church hadn't been there to tamp, you know, to basically moderate some of that, you know, to and to continue to interrogate its role in that and to continue to work to do better and to improve the condition of people throughout that history i mean hey that's the godless empire we we live under those godless conquistadors people yeah we live under people who see human beings as nothing but consumers or producers who see no value in us save what they can wring out of us financially. Yeah. Do you think they're a lot more merciful than those conquistadors? Yeah. How's that godless world treating you? For much of history, we were primarily concerned with tradition. Since the French scientific and industrial revolutions, we've been more inclined to focus on progress. 
you know, the future is much more important than the past. The past is all superstition and ignorance and darkness. The Fedora atheists never tire of reminding you that science gives us medicine and, of course, Christianity can give us nothing but faith healing and miracles. And, you know, that's, you know, certainly can't overlook the benefits of the scientific revolution you know, or the industrial revolution or the French revolution. But one of the big things that has happened since those revolutions is we've gone from a focus on tradition to an emphasis on progress. Now, tradition talks about preserving your history as part of an unbroken line, you know, doing things the way they've always been done. It's considered a guideline. You know, tradition generally gets at least a vote and sometimes a veto, whereas progress doesn't concern itself with outmoded ideas, with superstitions, with all the... with. Progress is all about the future. The future's so bright, you gotta wear shades. I mean, hell, I remember when I, it's 1975, when I was like 10 years old, we were expecting to have moon colonies by 2000. And when you get too besotted by the myth of progress, you start to see all of history as a series of atrocities from which you're trying to escape and see the future as this tabula rasa where you're going to create a bold, beautiful new world. And though we've lost a lot of our faith in God, we have not lost the religious impulse that's hardwired into us. Nature abhors a vacuum. If you don't have that outlet in faith, you're going to have your brain, your wiring is going to seek some outlet for that impulse. The first great secular religion was created by a rabbi's son named Karl Marx. I mean, Marxism provided a purpose, it provided an explanation of the world, it gave you a model of the future, it gave you good guys and bad guys. You know, for people, I mean, Marxism took off largely in the Jewish community because at that time most of those Jews were newly emancipated from the ghetto, newly emancipated from, you know, God. They are trying to figure out how to make a place for themselves in this brave, bold, hostile new world. And combined with the grievances from Christian laborers who had the same anti-clerical sentiments that the French revolutionaries had had, Marxism became a great world religion and claimed a great victory. No Napoleon came to rescue the Russians and restore their church. But while the American Empire has lasted 244 years and counting, the Soviet Union only made it 71 years and, you know, even before that time, it was starting to show its age, and old-style Marxism has become decidedly unfashionable in the wake of its collapse. I mean, it had already been facing an uphill battle when you had the refugees from the Frankfurt School had come here. You know, communism didn't really take off in the United States because our American work proletariat was pretty prosperous and generally content. I mean, the Russian peasants and the laborers were starving. They were angry. It, the Americans in mid-20th mid century, mid century America, the workers were generally kind of conservative 
conservative because they were happy with the way things were going. And so one of the things you see that happening about that time is you get a synthesis of Marxism and Freudianism. And that's what you hear, the bugbear, cultural Marxism. You know, I understand that term's loaded. It's used a lot of times for stuff that's not genuinely, you know, cultural Marxism. I prefer the term Marxist-Freudianism. That's, you know, it's a synthesis of Marx and Freud. A couple of people who did that, Wilhelm Reich wrote The Mass Psychology of Fascism, you know, where he basically considered fascism to be a part of an authoritarian personality led by sexual repression. You'll also see Marcuse goes into some detail on this. You know, their ideas were a world without gods, you know, without inhibitions, without repressions, you know, where people could do what they wanted to do and be who they wanted to be without worrying about any antiquated ideas on appropriate sexual behavior, on monogamy, on the choice of sexual partners. Wilhelm Reich had the idea that like our problems were caused by hang-ups. That was like caric body armor that led us to, sex, to inhibition, and that we could live a more full life if we would get rid of those hang-ups and, as they said in the 60s, let it all hang out. For Marcuse, homosexuals were going to be the vanguard of the sexual revolution because they were going to free us from the silly idea that sex was primarily for procreation and open us up to the world of all the various forms of entertainment and pleasure that we could gain from it. One can only imagine how much all those men missed out on visiting whorehouses through the years because thinking that they were only coming there to make babies with those women. In 1950s, the authoritarian personality, Theodore Adorno, suggested that stern parenting led children to idealize authority figures and identify with them, and therefore would lead inevitably to fascism. This was a very influential book. It led to a whole new school of, you know, was one of the sources of a new school of parenting. You saw it with Dr. Spock. You saw a much more permissive parenting style coming on near the, near the end of the boomer era. And we can see today, of course, that children are much more well-adjusted, happier than they were during the authoritarian days of parenting in the mid-20th century. But from the beginning, the critical theory focused strongly on the traditional family because they felt that the traditional family was the root of many social, social evils, and they were going to fix society where old-school Marxists wanted to overthrow the capitalist owners of production and bring the proletariat to power. You know, the cultural Marxists wanted to fix the society from within. You know, the state was going to wither away when they had created people who were incapable of being authoritarian. We were going to get rid of traditional gender roles. We see the feminist revolution, Betty Friedan's work at the time. We see we were going to get rid of you know, sexual mores. Of course, this is the birth of swingers clubs. You know, this was seen as a way of not just a se The sexual revolution had a very, very strong political competent to it. 
I mean, it definitely got hijacked by people that were just there to watch porn and go to orgies. But there was a real idea there that we were going to fuck our way into utopia. And this brings us to Black Lives Matter, which many people have noticed recently is starting to become LGBT Black Lives Matter. Indeed, some have even noticed that the black part is optional. The recent protest in Seattle, which was led by Black Femmes Takeover I-5, was ended when two non-binary people, who neither of whom were either black nor femme, were struck by a car driven by the only black person who appeared to be at the protest, more precisely an Eritrean named Dawit Kelete. I hope I pronounced that right. And this has been... There's been a fair... Tariq Nasheed has talked about this a bit on his blog. He's been a bit unkind to Billy Porter and... Yeah, I, I'm going to refrain from commenting on that one. I am going to stay in my lane. It's not my place to comment on affairs in the black community. I'm not a black person. I'm, not a, I'm certainly not, as Tariq would say, a foundational black American. I don't, you know, it's not my, you know, it is not my movie. It's not my popcorn concession. You know, how Tariq feels about gay people is Tariq's business. But a couple of things he's said about Billy Porter is he's criticized Billy for talking about homophobia in the black community. And I've seen him get a lot of other people saying this because he feels that Billy, that a lot of the black trans people and a lot of black gay people are being used as wedges to attack the black community. He's like, you know, when you complain about black homophobia, you know, you're just feeding the idea that black men are inherently violent. You know, black men commit more crimes. Well, black men beat up more, you know, black men all are all beat, always beating up gays. And, okay, I think there's something there that's very interesting. Just as a side note, when you hear people talking about privilege and owning their privilege. This is the white thing, you know, the white people that want to sit there and announce all the ways that they have an advantage over you because that somehow absolves them of it. You know, there's a tradition in the black community and I've seen this, you know, I do have black acquaintances and black friends, believe it or not. It is, you know, very much you don't air your dirty laundry in public and the reason you don't do that is you know that if you make some comment about like black men not taking care of their kids you know that it will soon be broadcast to facebook with you know my black friend x said that like you know black men are all lazy and don't take care of their kids it's used as ammunition against your community and when you own your privilege, you're not really risking anything. You're not making your community look worse. You're just trying to make yourself look better. That's, and I think that's something that gets missed in a lot of those dialogues. But I also think that, Ty, that Tariq is on to something when he talks about this being used as a wedge issue. My guess is that BLM, the, the official Black Lives Matter movement, is going to become focusing much, much more on black trans and black gay lives. And the reason I think this is going to happen is 
Remember what I said about how people, any kind of nationality, any kind of strong ethnic identity is really, really dangerous and toxic to these people, especially when the people espousing that ethnic identity refuse to get with your program. I'm expecting we're going to see Tariq Nasheed start getting strikes. We're probably going to see people like, you know, maybe even people like Ice Cube. We might see people like certainly one of their personal pet bugbears, the Honorable Reverend Louis Farrakhan, because they make unkind statements about sodomites. And, you know, there's... Because you can't really shut down, like, this is the era of BL mania. You can't really shut down a black man because he says mean things about a privileged group. But you can shut down conservative black nationalists. You, you can shut down, you know, an uppity black man by pinning him as a homophobe. And there's another thing you can do there that's very going to be very, very convenient. Remember, these people hate religion. They hate piety. They see religion as a superstition that's keeping you in chains from your bold, brave new future. I'm guessing their next target is going to be the black church, where Bible-believing black, you know, Bible-believing Christians following the Bible believe that sodomy is a sin and that a man should not lay with a man as with a woman. That's, you know, you can agree with that or you can disagree with that, you know, but if you're going to have religious freedom, it has to include the religious freedom to say things that you might not like. The black church has been the bulwark of the black community for centuries. It's, it's such an important part of the black American experience. And you know, yes, there have been excesses. There have been con artists. You know, the church is made. The church on earth is a flawed place made by flawed men. But there's still a spirit behind it. There's still. This has been the center of a community, and it, it was going to be attacked by these people because it is a religious center and because it is the center of a community. You know, all the things that make the black church so important for your community are what make it such a juicy target. And perhaps the most, no, definitely the most important thing of all, the thing they hate more than anything about your church is that your church honors Jesus Christ. They hate Christ like they hate Christ and they defy Christ and they blaspheme Christ, but they also fear Christ. They run from crosses like Nosferatu, that was one of my first tip-offs on why Christianity is so important to winning this culture war. When your enemy hates and fears something that much, there has to be something valuable there. And that's what they want to target in your community. That center has kept your community so long and they want to rip it out don't let them rip it out the way they've done within the white community within so many of our mainline and mainstream churches. 
Right now, things are bad, and they are about to get a lot worse. I expect an economic crash within 2021, if not sooner than that. At that time, we're going to be seeing a depression. We're going to be seeing the costs of the COVID epidemic coming up, being tallied up. We're likely to see a regime change. We may well see the collapse of the United States. I'm frankly, if it makes it through November 2020, I will be pleasantly surprised. Right now, I think we are teetering on a brink and our world is about to change. I don't know if it's going to change for the better. I know in the short term it's going to change for the much worse. I know that there are rich and powerful people who want you to think that I hate you, that want you to think that I'm dangerous. I know those people want me to hate you, and they want me to think you're dangerous. Who benefits if we buy into that? Not us. We can work together to build a better world. I will do that, as I said before. I don't care about incidentals like your race, your color, your gender, your gender presentation, whatever, so long as you are a person of goodwill who wants to work toward peaceful solutions and ways to work our way out of what is going to be the worst crisis of our lifetime and probably one of the worst crises of the past 200 years. I bear no hate to anybody who does not hate me. I seek a peaceful solution. I don't know if we're going to be able to get that. I wish I could be more optimistic. I don't expect that our current racial crisis is going to end with less racism. I expect it to end with a good bit more. I expect it to end with the white flight and leading to a reshuffling of demographics, which will lead to more segregation and not less. You know, I expect that instead of like the defunding the police will mean police are going to be re replaced by privatized security forces. I don't expect they're going to be any more accountable than the old police were, nor do I expect that they'll be any less brutal. I'm not happy about this. Oncologists don't tap dance when they're telling patients they got cancer, but I can't lie to you. I don't think things are going to get better. I expect they're going to get a lot worse. And I think the only thing that's going to have even a chance of bending that arc, I mean, they say the arc of history bends towards justice and if you look at history, that's bullshit. The arc of history bends towards power, and we are facing off against powers. We're facing off against principalities. We are facing off against evil. And the only hope we have is to come together. And if you want to come together with me under the shadow of the cross, I don't care about your creed. You know, Byzantium fell because they were busy the Latin Catholics and the Orthodox were busy arguing over whether they should use leavened or unleavened bread for the, Orth for the Eucharist. And while they were arguing, the Turk, who cared nothing about the question, was waiting outside the gate. Let's not make that mistake again. If you 
are willing to stand beside Christ, if you're willing to fight for Christ, if you're willing to fight for that tradition, for that, for our heritage, for our history, I will stand beside you. I will fight beside you. And if you don't follow Christ, I'm willing to show your religion the same respect it shows mine. You know, Islam believes that Jesus is the second greatest prophet you know, before Muhammad, peace be upon him. I can accept that you don't understand that Christ is divine if you can accept that you know, I can acknowledge Muhammad as a great wise man but not a prophet. If we can agree to that and we can agree to treat each other's faith with respect and there is a tradition of us both doing that in Christianity and Islam, I can work with you. If you're a Hindu, you've shown, if you show respect for my religion, I will treat your religion with the... I will return courtesy for courtesy. I might not understand your faith. I might disagree with it, but I will give you the room to practice it. That's been an American tradition with freedom of religion, and it's always been especially important to me as somebody who grew up a member of what was a minority religion in America, and not just that, a persecuted minority religion in America. So, I'm, you know, I guess, like, if I were a proud boy, I suppose I'd be a multicultural white supremacist. I mean, I'm a Catholic... I am a white Catholic American of Irish and Ukrainian descent. That's, you know, that's what you get. I, you know, sometimes I, I am a flawed person. I'm a cafeteria Catholic. Sometimes I tell dirty jokes. I've told a couple who would have Richard Pryor giving me the dead honky routine. I'll admit that. I am not a perfect man. I, you know, I can't promise you anything other than, you know, I will treat you as a human being with an immortal soul made in the image of God. I will tell you that your life not only matters, I'll tell you that your life is sacred. And I will fight for you and alongside you if we, need, if we have to. And if we can work together to avoid that fight, I will do everything in my power to help you. All I ask you is this. Understand Things are bad. Things are going to get worse. And when the system falls, they've, they've tried to pick your enemies out for you. They've been pumping up for years now that white supremacists are on the border. They were trying to tell you white supremacists were doing the rioting in Detroit and Minneapolis. Look, we all know that's not true. Some of you have repeated it, you've seen it repeated on the news, but you've seen those videos. You know it's not true. We live in a world where you're expected to ignore your eyes and repeat the credo, or you're afraid of getting canceled. How many of you are reading this? Have you had to go back through and scrub your social media because you're afraid you might lose your job over something you posted 10 years ago? Do you ever lay up at night, awake at night, worrying that something might happen to you from the past, like you're going to hear about something that happened in high school that's going to ruin you? How many times have you stayed silent rather than speak up because you knew saying the truth could cost you your job, could cost you your career, could cost you your education? Are you tired of living in fear yet? Are you tired of living a lie? 
I can't promise you much, but I will promise you this. I might not always be accurate, and if you correct me, I'll acknowledge that. I will not knowingly lie to you. I may say things that make you feel uncomfortable. I may say things you disagree with. I will not knowingly lie to you. You can rely on me for that, and if I can rely on you for that, we can work together, and maybe we can, just maybe, we can change the world. And I'd like to close out tonight with one of my favorite poems. It's the last section of T.S. Eliot's Little Getting. What we call the beginning is often the end, and to make an end is to make a beginning. The end is where we start from, and every phrase and sentence that is right, where every word is at home, taking its place to support the others, the word neither diffident nor ostentatious, an easy commerce of the old and new, the common word exact without vulgarity, the formal word precise but not pedantic, the complete consort dancing together. Every phrase and every sentence is an end and a beginning, every poem an epitaph, and any action is a step to the block, to the fire, down the sea's throat, or to an illegible stone, and that is where we start, We die with the dying, see? We depart and we go with them. We are born with the dead, see? They return and bring us with them. The moment of the rose and the moment of the yew tree are of equal duration. A people without history is not redeemed from time, for history is a pattern of timeless moments. So while the light rain on a winter's afternoon in a secluded chapel History is now in England, with the drawing of the love and the voice of this calling. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time, through the unknown, unremembered gate, when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning, at the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall and the children in the apple tree, not known because not looked for, but heard, half heard, in the stillness between two waves of the sea, quick now, here, now, always, a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well, when the tongues of flame are enfolded into the crown not of fire, and the fire and the rose are one. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, thank you for listening. I'll see you again next week, and may God bless and keep us, everyone.